Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Renee. I'm one of the pastors here at Twin Lakes Church. You guys glad to be here this morning? Isn't it a beautiful weekend here in Santa Cruz? And uh, we want to welcome you if you're joining us live. Also, everybody joining us on Facebook Live. Every single week, we have more and more people from all around the world, places like Morocco and Egypt and Alaska and uh, Italy. We've had all sorts of people, Ireland, watching uh, our church services live. And so it's great to have you join us, too. We have begun our Richer Life series. We kicked this off last weekend, and I would love for everybody to be literally on the same page. We wrote a little devotional book that goes along with this. Now, I want to emphasize this is not something anybody's making any money off of. Writing this book was just my gift to the church. I don't get anything uh, extra for doing this. I don't get any return from the book. All the money goes back into the ministries of Twin Lakes Church, and it's donation anyway. So if you don't have anything with you, forget it. Just take the book. We would love for you to join us. It has daily devotions for every single day. We've just begun week two. And also in the back, there are small group questions for your small group. We have hundreds and hundreds of people all over the county and the world doing these small group questions. They tie into videos that I filmed that you can find at tlc.org slash richer life. You can see how we're trying to make this just an immersive experience as we explore Richer Life. And if you're joining us online, you can order this on Amazon or download this to your Kindle or your iPhone or your tablet device. So there's all kinds of ways that you can get into this. I'm so thankful for modern technology. I heard Billy Graham say one time, modern technology is both bringing out the best and the worst of human nature. And so we want to be part of bringing out the best of human nature. I'm really super grateful for our whole team that's putting that together. Now, this is a series about biblical generosity, living generously. Now, many people, when they hear that word generously, tend to think of money. But money is only a small subset of what the Bible means when it talks about generous living. It also means forgiving generously, being relationally generous, emotionally generous, being generous with your hospitality and more. And we're going to look at all those aspects of kind of living large, living generously in this series because it does lead to a richer life. And most importantly, it honors God because our God is a generous God. Now, today, as we continue to develop this topic of generosity, what I want to ask is, biblically, where does generosity come from? Because generosity doesn't just come out of a vacuum or just out of a sense of obligation. Here's the biblical truth. Jot this down in your notes that look like this, that, that are in the bulletins that you got when you came in. Generosity is the overflow of a heart filled with gratitude. That's sort of the big idea for this morning. Generosity is the overflow of a heart that is filled with gratitude to God, just for being God, for all that he lavishes on us by his grace. We have so much in this world to be grateful for. And when we are grateful, there are all kinds of benefits. I put some of those benefits in the message notes in bullet points. I mean, look at, look at those. People who are more grateful get better sleep. If you're more grateful, lower blood pressure. In the Richer Life book, we ask you to begin a gratitude journal and see if this isn't true for you. All kinds of benefits, all awesome, but there's a problem. And it's this. When we most need these effects is precisely when we struggle to be grateful, right? I mean, when you could really use lower blood pressure and better sleep 
is when it's very difficult, to, like you just had a fender bender on your way home and your insurance deductible is $1,000 and you're getting home and you know you have to work very late on a project, could be an all-nighter, and the kids now are showing signs of chickenpox and the baby is screaming and the neighbors are rehearsing their metal band in their garage at two in the morning and somebody tells you, be grateful in all circumstances, you just want to punch them in the nose, right? It's when we need these effects that we can't think of anything to be thankful for because life's a mess. Show you what I mean. My friend Brian King, uh, former president of Cabrillo College uh, next door, moved his family to Folsom, California from Santa Cruz about three or four years ago. And when Brian first told his daughter Celia, uh, she was a young teenager at the time, she was not thrilled, to say the least. In fact, she was keeping a gratitude journal at the time that she showed me. Uh, and so he was keeping this gratitude because just like today, uh, and just like in the series, I was encouraging the church four years ago to keep gratitude journals. And so she, at 14 years old, decided, I'm going to do this. And with Celia's permission, Celia's a freshman in college right now, I'm able to share with you that day's entry in her gratitude journal. Thankfulness, not in my life, I have nothing to be thankful for. You might say, I live in the beautiful Santa Cruz, but guess what? Not for long. I am moving to ugly, disgusting Sacramento, California. And believe me, I do not want to. No beach. And then I love the way this escalates. It, eventually, on page two, it gets to, I just want to die. I would rather be starving and homeless but be here than live in Sacramento. I, I would rather be cut with paper cuts all over my body and jump into a sea of lemon juice. I think I'll just cry and cry until my tear ducts burst. What is the point of life if you live in a terrible place with no friends? My motto now is life sucks, trademark. Okay, I'm done writing about it. Makes me sad to think. Goodbye, Santa Cruz. Hey, let me remind you, this was her gratitude journal. <laughs> and by the way, Celia and I were texting uh, this last Thursday. This is Celia now, proud graduate from high school, starting college uh, this fall. So we were texting on Thursday, and she said, of course you can use that journal, but please tell everybody, quote, that move ended up being the greatest thing in my life. <laughs> but let's be honest here. There are times when all of our gratitude journals could start, thankfulness not. In my life, I have nothing to be thankful for right now. So the big question is, of course, is there a source of gratitude beyond my circumstances? Right? Well, yes, there's a source of gratitude you can tap into no matter what's going on in your life right now. And one of my favorite places to see it is in the story of Jesus we're looking at today in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36 and going to the end of the chapter. Now, I'm going to read the story and explain some of the cultural context to you, and I want to encourage you, you can find the whole story written on page 2 of your notes and then I'm going to make three quick application points there on page three. But if you've got your Bibles with you or on your phone or something, uh, crack open those Bibles. I want to encourage you to get into the Word of God for yourself. Uh, we 
covered this story very briefly in the daily devotional at the end of this past week. That kind of got your mind thinking about this, but today I want to just dive into further depth here. So Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Okay, stop. Who are the Pharisees? They're often portrayed as kind of villains these days, you Pharisee. But actually, in those days, they were the holiest of holy people. They tried to keep all the commands of the Bible faithfully. And actually, there's nothing wrong with that, right? One of the ways they went off track, however, was they thought that if they even associated with unholy people, then they personally would be compromised. In a word, the Pharisees were concerned about contamination, kind of getting sin germs from other people. And if you're the type of person who ever worries about, like, getting germs and, and, and worries about that sort of thing in your life, you will be able to relate to the Pharisees. Just translate it from the physical realm to the spiritual realm. By the way, did you know what the most germy substance in your house is? It's not your toilet seat. It's not door handles. Any guesses? It's not soap. Somebody shouted it out. It's kitchen towels. Check this out. 89% of kitchen towels, the kind you use to clean your counters, that they tested in a recent study contained coliform bacteria, which is the really, really bad stuff. 89%, that means probably yours, are infested with these germs. And you use them to clean the surfaces in your house. Now, some of you right now are going, no big deal, I got a good immune system. But some of you right now, you want to jump up and run home and incinerate those towels, right? Use bleach on all your surfaces. Well, you can relate to how the Pharisees felt if that's how you're grossed out right now. That feeling is what the Pharisees felt when they looked at unholy people. Because they thought if you just kind of touched unholy people, fellowship with them, associated with them, then you by association became impure. So this Pharisee invites Jesus over, and he doesn't know yet whether, you know, he's pure or impure, heretic or orthodox. He wants to size him up. If this, is this guy a prophet or not? Now, in those days, if you invited somebody to dinner, here is what was polite to do. One, you provided some water for your guest so they could wash their feet. I mean, think about it. In those days, people wore open sandals. They walked through dust and mud and manure. Their feet got really dirty and really stinky. And so when you went over to somebody's house, you either washed your own feet with water that was provided for you by your host, or if it was a special dinner like this one, your host would do it for you or have his servants do it. Second, a good host always greeted you with a kiss. And we don't do this in America, but in Europe, they still do this. And in the Middle East, they still do this. And every single time I go back to Switzerland to visit my family, my relatives who live there, I, I always forget to remember. Now, in France, they kiss one direction, and in Switzerland, they kiss the other direction, and which is which, and every time I bonk somebody on the forehead because I got it wrong. Every time. And then third, <clears throat> excuse me, they would pour a little fragrant olive oil on your head because in those days they used oil instead of soap 
to wash up, and that would take some more of the nasty smell away, right? But this Pharisee doesn't do any of that. No water, no oil, no kiss of greeting, nothing. It's just, hey, Jesus, sit down over there, right? Why? Contamination. He doesn't know yet if Jesus checks out. So it's like, keep your distance so you can sit down there. Now, it says they reclined at the table. I really want to help you picture this story. And this is important because we hear the word recline, we think of a lazy boy, right? Your feet are below you. But here's what it looked like in those days. Low table, mats, and their feet would be stretched out away from the table. And this is important when you picture what happens next in this story. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. What's going on here? In those days, if somebody hosted a prominent teacher, and Jesus certainly qualified, kind of a celebrity already, these were public events, kind of like you know, the Panetta lecture series in Monterey or something. People would want to hear what this guest would have to say, and they'd line up against the wall and eavesdrop on the conversation. No cable, no internet. This is what passed as entertainment back in those days. And so a woman enters, and not just any woman, says she was a woman of the town. And the phrase used there, many commentators that I read say, was a Greek term that might have meant she was a prostitute. It was a term like our English, a woman of the streets, or a working girl, right? And Luke specifies she had lived a sinful life, not just made a mistake once or twice. Her whole life is characterized as a sinful life. And everybody in the room knew it, as we will see. And it says she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, this wasn't like some big jar she was lugging around, you know. What what was she doing with that? It would have looked more like this, about this size. Alabaster is something like marble that they mined in Egypt, and these would have been very expensive. And you need to know, alabaster jars were often completely sealed. And at the top, there was a tiny little opening so that the fragrance inside could get out, but the actual perfume would stay inside the jar. If the owner decided to use the perfume, the top had to be broken off. The neck had to be snapped so that the perfume could get out. Now, these were tied around a woman's neck. You can see the little hole where the string went through it, right? And she would wear this around her neck if she had the money to do it. They were very expensive. There's one ancient first century source that says that they, they cost, with the perfume, it cost about 400 gold coins to buy one of these things. So why would women even do this? Well, again, this was ancient times before air conditioning, before deodorant. And needless to say, the body smells were incredible. So women who could afford it had these around their necks because of kind of an aroma of beauty would surround them. And if this woman was a prostitute, well, this would have been like a tool of her trade. This would have been something absolutely essential for her profession to make her attractive to potential clients. Now watch what happens. As she stood behind him at his feet, remember these are feet stretched out on the floor, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them. 
and poured perfume on them. There's a lot of information here. Let's take it just phrase by phrase. She had apparently heard about Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, it says the Pharisees were very frustrated with Jesus because he had sinners around him, sinners around him all the time. Why were they attracted to Jesus? Because he was speaking of God's grace. And she'd heard of his teaching or heard his teaching, and now there she was in the same room with him, and she's overwhelmed. It says she's weeping because she sees they never even gave him water for his feet or fragrant oil either. And so she wets his feet with her tears. And the word the author, Luke, uses here for wet is the same word in Greek for rain. She's drenching his feet with her tears like rain. She's so emotional. And she, the reason I think this was spontaneous, she didn't plan this, is because she didn't even have a towel with her. And now his feet are wet, and instead it says she wipes them with her hair. And this was a very shocking thing for a woman to do in public. In fact, one first century rabbi taught that a woman letting her hair down on the side of any man other than her husband was grounds for divorce. But she doesn't care what these, these religious people in this room think. She just loves Jesus so much that she kisses his feet. Now, what's that about, kissing feet? Again, we don't really have anything like this in American culture. But in many cultures around the world, kissing somebody's feet is a sign of extreme reverence and gratitude. You might know we often take medical and dental teams with us when we go to Little Flock Children's Home in India near Chennai, where as part of our 2020 vision, we actually built a dental and a medical clinic and a school as part of our 2020 vision initiative. But we not only take care of the kids and the staff there, we also open up these clinics to the surrounding villages. So just picture the building you built that opened last year. And, and villagers from their surrounding villages are flowing in to find medical and dental help. Well, to say thank you, the villagers often put their hands together like this. And the more appreciative they are, the higher their hands go. And if, if your hands are like this above your head, that is the second to highest compliment you can give somebody, the second most intense way you can say thank you. The most intense, well, the first time a woman bent down in gratitude and touched and stroked the feet of our dentist. Our dentist was just shocked. Like, what is happening here, you know? What's she doing? Well, in India, that is the sign of the absolute deepest gratitude. And it was the same exact thing in Jesus' culture. But she's not just touching his feet. It says she poured out her perfume. Now, remember what I told you. What's the only way she could have poured out her perfume? She broke the jar. She snapped the neck of it. She broke the flask. Now, she had probably put all the money she had into that thing. And if she was a prostitute, the most important thing a prostitute would have had in the world would have been her desirability. But here she is pouring out her primary investment at Jesus' feet. And I want you to see how this is not just gratitude. This is repentance. Because she's saying, this is no longer going to run my life. Now you are my Lord. Now I just want to follow you. 
And, and her giving is extravagant to Jesus because his love has been extravagant to her and she's overwhelmed with gratitude. And at this point, Simon makes an abrupt decision about Jesus. He's not overwhelmed by this scene at all. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, giving him germs, what kind of a woman she is, that she's a sinner. So he can't be a prophet because he's letting himself get contaminated. You see the thinking there? Now, it says he said to himself. He didn't say this out loud. So how in the world would anybody know what Simon's thinking? Well, of course, it's kind of a literary joke because everybody knew what Simon was thinking because his face told the whole story. Sometimes you don't have to say a word, right? Your face says it all. Kind of like another Simon you might remember. I'm thinking... Simon the Pharisee probably looked something like this. What is happening over there, right? But in Simon the Pharisee's mind, Jesus is getting contaminated by this woman. A a prophet would not allow that, so surely he must not be a prophet. And Jesus knows what he's thinking. So verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Okay, tell me, teacher, Simon says. And Jesus tells him a story. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. That's about a year and a half's worth of wages. A year and a half worth of your salary. And another owed him about 50. That's a lot too. That's two months worth of wages. So both these figures are astronomical. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Interesting, the Greek word, therefore, forgave, the root of the word is charis, which is the Greek word for grace. So he graced them both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven, whatever. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. I almost wonder if there's a little irony here. You're so good at judging. You're really proud of your ability to judge. You have judged correctly. And then in verse 44, it all starts to make sense. Notice what Jesus does. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, are you catching that? He turns, he's looking at the woman, but he's still speaking to Simon. Do you see this woman? Now, what kind of a question was that? She'd been making a spectacle. Everybody in the room was looking at the woman But that wasn't the question, are you looking at her? The question is, do you see her? Because Simon didn't see her. He only saw a category, a dirty dish towel. She was a sinner. And this is exactly, listen, this is exactly what can happen to religious people like me and maybe like you. Very subtly, we can start to just see people in categories. Drug addict, philanderer, heretic, sexually promiscuous, crazy homeless person. 
And what happens when I see people in categories is I don't see anybody made in the image and likeness of God anymore. I don't see anybody who needs to be touched by the love and the grace of God. I don't see anybody whose life could be radically transformed. And then Jesus praises her. Simon, I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And then he makes this startling pronouncement. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins. And notice he doesn't excuse her sin. He's like saying, Simon, hey, I'm not going to argue you that point. Her, her many sins, but watch this, have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And really what he's saying is whoever thinks God didn't have much to forgive when he forgave me, probably didn't have to die on the cross, maybe just like one nail and one palm for me, you know, because I'm pretty good. Whoever thinks like that loves God little, doesn't get joy out of their faith. And to be honest with you, I see it in myself. And to be very frank, I see it in us all the time. I've been here almost 24 years now. And here's what I see when I'm introducing communion or leading in communion, which we're going to have in, in, in a few minutes today. I see those of us who are second and third generation Christians who've been coming to the church for decades, kind of like going, oh, communion, kind of like sneaking a glance at the watch, like, oh, is this service going overtime? And then sitting right next to them, there's somebody who had been living a life just hell-bent and lost and empty, and maybe they just got baptized a few weeks ago, and there's literally just tears just pouring down their face, and they're just trying not to sob as they're holding this, and they're thinking of Jesus and what meaning he's given to their lives and what love. You got Simon and you got the woman sitting right next to each other. And he looks into her eyes, and then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then the religious people, of course, start debating, because that's another thing religious people do. You know, they didn't rejoice over the fact that the most notorious woman we have ever known is going to go now live a new life. Let's debate about how we don't like the way it happened. Who is he? Who is this who even forgives sins? It's interesting, back in Luke chapter 5, the same group, the Pharisees, had the same complaint about Jesus. He goes around forgiving sins, and they say, who does he think he is, God? Only God can forgive sins. And, of course, the answer is, well, Jesus is God. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you, not your works, your faith. In the Greek, that's in the perfect tense. And some of you are going... That just changed my life. Let me explain that to you. In the perfect tense, that means something that happened in the past that's going to have continuing action in the future. He's saying, it's a done deal. It's not, if you keep it up, it'll save you. Or if you're really super good, it's going to save you. No, it's done. You're saved by faith, not works. Now think about it. Her faith obviously didn't rise to, you know, theology PhD levels. She didn't know much. She didn't know all the answers to all the religious questions. She didn't even know all the questions. 
But remember in our Small Faith Great God series, we looked at the man who told Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to believe, but I'm filled with doubt. I don't have all the answers. It's not the strength of your faith. It's the object of your faith that matters. And I want to make this clear. What saved this woman wasn't her emotion. It was her direction. This is important because in our culture, when people think of faith, they almost immediately think of emotion. Like, ah, it doesn't matter what you believe. What matters is if you believe it with all your heart. Like, faith is an emotion that you can experience, like joy or confidence. Or people think of faith as all doctrine. Like, I've got to know all the theological answers to all my theological questions in order to have saving faith. No, what matters is the direction of your faith. Is it directed to the right object, to the right person who can effect the change that you're hoping to make? Her faith Her faith is in whom? Who's her faith in? It's in Jesus. She's drawn to Jesus, and then she's consumed by Jesus, and then she worships Jesus, and she hears from Jesus, I forgive you. That's it. And that's the way it still works today. It's not the perfection of your faith. It's the direction of your faith that matters. You don't have to have all the answers You don't have to be perfect. You just have to love Jesus, turn to him, and away from your sin and your selfishness. Don't you love this woman? I am so glad her story is in the Bible. I love it. But let's bring this in for a landing before communion with three characters in this story to learn from. Jot this down. Number one, I need to see Simon as a trap to avoid. A trap to avoid. You know, to some degree, the Pharisees actually were on the right path, and then they made a wrong turn because the Pharisees decided there's two kinds of people. There's unholy people, and there's holy people, and God wants us to be holy. Actually, so far, so good, but Simon and the rest of the Pharisees decided, I am in the category of holy because of my good deeds, and this woman is in the category of unholy because of her bad deeds. The truth is, there are two categories of people, holy and unholy. In the holy category is Jesus, and in the unholy category is everybody else. And if you don't see that, then you just don't don't have any joy when you understand that Jesus Christ saves you and makes you holy because none of us can repay our debt. We're all in need of God's forgiveness. Jesus' parable is interesting because both the 50-denary debtor and the 500-denary debtor both had debts they couldn't pay. Like, it doesn't matter if you drown in 50 feet of water or 500 feet of water. You're still dead. You're still underwater. They both were underwater. It's just that she knew it, and Simon the Pharisee didn't. And so he missed out on the joy of God's grace. And he was keeping people from God that God wanted to reach. And so if you tend towards Simon faith, and who doesn't, if they've been a veteran religious person for a while, repent of that. And then the second point, the second character, I need to see the woman actually as an example to follow. The woman is an example to follow. Some of you right now relate to her instantly. She wasn't an expert on religion. She had a lot of issues, but she had the courage to walk into a religious meeting full of religious people because she's drawn to Jesus. 
And maybe that explains you right now today. You kind of feel out of place here, surrounded by all these religious people who seem to know a lot more answers than you. But you sure are drawn to Jesus to the point where you don't even care what anybody else thinks. You're just here to love Jesus. Now, again, I want you to feel the story emotionally. So I want you to hear from a woman very much like the woman in Luke's story, Annie Lobert was a prostitute in Las Vegas. And she sank deeper and deeper into despair until one night she overdosed on cocaine. And as she had a heart attack and believed she was dying, she cried out to Jesus, even though she had not been religious before. Just said, Jesus, if you're there, help me. And I want you to listen to her describe on video what happened next. That's what I said, Jesus. I don't know if you're real, but I don't want to die. The ambulance came, and the doctor came up to me, and he grabbed my hand, and he said, you are lucky to be alive. You have so much drugs in your system, little lady. You should be dead. God must be with you. And I knew that Jesus heard my prayer. And I laid there, and I had this peace come over me that was nothing like I'd ever felt in my entire life. And I knew God gave me a second chance. It got better, and I started reading my Bible. I recovered and was afraid to go to church. Come on, an ex-prostitute. Do I think if I walk in church, people are going to look at me and really love me? But. I walked in their church and people embraced me. And God just really started doing that inner healing. And the Holy Spirit was just like speaking to me, telling me that I was beautiful and that I was chosen and that I was set apart and that I was sanctified and I was a holy vessel for Him. I started to stand on Jesus' words that I'm whole, that I'm healed, that I'm pure. I'm a virgin in him. And that gives me peace. I remember I was vacuuming my house one day, and the Lord said to me, he said, Annie, I want you to go back down to that strip, and I want you to tell the girls that are in slavery that I love them. And so that's what I'm called to do to simply tell them, God loves you. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how deep, how dirty you feel, that there's redemption. You are white as snow when you accept him into your heart.
left you. Redemption. Redeemed. Set free. That's my life. As love. Annie have been drawn to Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. And the thing is, that's you. That's me. We are that woman because all of us have debts that we can't pay. Now, I want you to notice something. Do you see how for both Annie and that woman in the story, her generosity is rooted in gratitude for God's Grace. She looks at God and generosity just overflows out of a sense of gratitude. And this is why we're focusing on cultivating gratitude for the Lord and his grace this week in the Richer Life book. In fact, I put some verses on the back of the notes just kind of to help you get started some ways that God has been extravagantly generous to you. Meditate on these this week. Every breath I breathe is from God. My salvation is from God. You know, I can honor him for all these things with my worship, with my gratitude. And that's really the third point. I need to see Jesus as the beautiful Savior that I love. You see, the reason this woman in the story is responding so passionately is because she's never been loved like this. She's touched a lot of men, but never like this. She's had a lot of men speak to her, but never like this. And because she's loved so differently, she is passionate in her response. Someone said, Simon's faith was a matter of obligation, but her faith was a matter of attraction. Do you see that? Someone said there's, there, there was an aesthetic core, kind of, kind of an artistic core to her faith. She saw the stunning beauty of Jesus and him pouring out his life for her. Somehow she saw that and she was just drawn to that. Simon doesn't have that. Simon's faith is just a list of rules. Now, of course, there's a place for rules, But as Tim Keller said, the core of our faith is beauty, the compelling beauty of what Jesus did for us. And if you don't see that, you will only have Simon faith. And it'll be ethical, and it'll be upstanding, and it'll be righteous, but no passion, no joy. And so in this story, Jesus is calling us to move from Simon faith to the faith of this woman. She sees the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so she pours out her perfume to him. And so the application question to ask is, how can I do that? How can I pour out perfume on Jesus' feet in gratitude and worship? Well, do you remember what Jesus said? Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And that's why I really want to encourage you to do one of the generosity projects that we've got going on this month. Take this orange sheet with you. Don't throw it away. Choose one of these at least and say, that's the one I'm going to do. If you don't feel comfortable doing a building project, 
How about Project Pajamas? This month, our goal is to raise a sum total of 10,000 pajamas for these kids in these life-altering transitions in their life. You can just bring them into church during the month of October. Lots of projects. Pick one. Give of your time, not out of obligation. That's Simon Faith. But because when you do one of these... That's pouring out perfume at the feet of Jesus. Do you see that? It's breaking your alabaster jar. It's, 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 it's beautiful. Now we're going to move into a time of communion as we close. But let me just ask you, do you sense the love in the eyes of Jesus as he looks at you, and even though you have a debt you cannot pay, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Man, that is going to elicit gratitude and generosity as overflow from you, because here's the bottom line. When I see how Jesus poured out his life for me, I will want to pour out my life for him because that is the source of gratitude beyond any changing circumstance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace shown to us in Jesus Christ. And God, in this room right now, maybe even in each heart, we've got Simons and we've got people like this woman. Some feel like that woman broken, yet grateful, And it's your kindness that leads us to repentance right now. But some of us need to repent of being Simon and putting ourselves in a category different than everybody else. God, may we see ourselves our dire need of you so that we rejoice in your extravagant grace and kind of break that alabaster jar in worship. Help us to see your extravagant love for us right now as we take communion. In Jesus' name, amen.